0: to, uh, sorry, the second half of chapter one of Matthew's Gospel, uh, which I'll refer to a little bit later, but uh, today's passage leads us in uh, to what is the nativity account um, in verse 18 in chapter one. So, we'll look at this together today. And for most of us, I imagine that perhaps a passage like this one is likely to leave us a little bit bewildered. Uh, It appears To contribute very little, really, it seems, that wouldn't have been more succinctly and clearly communicated in just, you know, a a punchy summary statement, a sentence or two that could have wrapped up the main points without leading us through that enormous long list. I mean, I guess if you're going to go home today and you can't actually remember any of the names that were just read out for us, what was the point? Uh, This week I came across a poem written by Frederick von Salat in 1835 about the decision that Matthew had made to begin his gospel in this way. And it sums up, I think, it's not a great poem, at least I'm probably not going to read it very well, uh, but it sums up, I think, something probably of the instinctive response that we have on being confronted with a list of names such as this. Are the poems up on the screen? I uh, hope, there we go. Uh, this one begat that one, this one begat that. It drags us along with the same dull lyric until my head is spinning with dead names. I tear you out. What is this barren leaf doing in the holy book, so full of splendor? What difference does it make whether Harry begat Conrad all the way down to him who made the world free? But what might at first appear, just to be a kind of dizzying swarm of unpronounceable names, I think, actually, with it comes some of the most penetrating insights, some of the most comforting assurances, actually, about how God Himself relates to us, His creatures. Uh, Have a look with me at chapter 1, verse 1, before we launch into the genealogy itself. Let's just see how Matthew uh, sets things up for us uh, before he launches into it. Chapter 1, verse 1. There Matthew begins... This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In speaking of Jesus as son of David and son of Abraham, I think I've got a little slide up there uh, for the screen just to sum it up for us. Uh, Matthew is framing Jesus as one who might fulfill the hopes of both ancient men, which each ancient man represented. Abraham's calling, of course, from God was to bless the nations of the world. King David's call from God was to embody God's rule here on earth, the rule of heaven on earth. And I guess in calling Jesus a Messiah, Matthew is saying that Jesus is the one who is to embody the hopes that were represented in both those two men, Abraham and David. Where on earth might such a, an exceptional person originate from? One who could possibly fulfill the expectations both of Abraham and David in the one person. Now humans have had this long and rather unsavory interest in trying to breed a better kind of person. Long before the Nazis made it infamous, even the Greek philosopher Plato had promoted the practice of eugenics, of breeding in order to try and produce a better human, a better person. Uh, Alexander Bell of inventing the telephone kind of fame, he proposed controlling immigration for eugenic purposes to attempt to ensure that only certain genetically worthy persons would be welcomed into his country, into Scotland, so that the value of the people of the nation wouldn't be compromised or diluted or watered down. The scientist, the UK scientist Marie Stopes, advocated eugenics and forced sterilisation to ensure that only the most consistently worthy specimens of humanity might be allowed to reproduce and to shape and influence the future generations. But when we examine the bloodline of Jesus, the Messiah, God has a surprising habit of disrupting such horrific human tendencies to control. God has this habit of wonderfully using and honouring those who others might be tempted just to dismiss and overlook altogether. The vast majority of Jesus' genealogy is expressed almost exclusively in that rather monotonous repeating pattern of, this person was the father of that one, and that one was the father of that one. Over and over again, the whole way through almost. So when it is that Matthew begins to depart from that stubbornly repeating pattern... He does so in order to grab our attention and focus our attention on those things that He wants us to pay particular careful attention to. And at several key points in Jesus' genealogy, I wonder if you noticed this, Matthew interrupts the father of, father of, father of, father of pattern with an unexpected mother of instead. Have a look with me from verse 2 and see if you notice these kind of disruptions to the regular pattern. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Minadab, Minadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Interrupting this father of, father of, father of pattern in this first section of the genealogy is the mention of three mothers, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And there's been plenty of debate and discussion as to why these particular women have unexpectedly been inserted into Jesus' genealogy. After all, there's no mention here, do you notice, of Sarah or Rebecca? No mention of Rachel and Leah. We looked at them in the, the story of the founding of, of Israel, in the story of Jacob early on. They were key women. They don't even get a show-in in this genealogy. Why is that? It's been regularly pointed out that Tamar, Rahab and Ruth were each under something of a cloud concerning their moral purity. Tamar is known for having tricked her own father-in-law into fathering a son for her. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute in the city of Jericho, which God's people had besieged and took possession of. And Ruth was a Moabitess. Uh, the Moabites were descended from a people who were infamous in the Bible for the practice of incest. And I've heard it said on not one or two occasions, quite a few occasions, that perhaps this is a picture of just how gracious God is, that it includes such women of dubious character amongst God's chosen people. But that suggestion actually makes little sense to me. For most of the men in this passage were far more morally compromised than any of these three women ever were. In fact, I think Matthew includes these women for precisely the opposite reason, because their righteousness outstripped, far surpassed those around about them. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to go back and read all the chapters surrounding the events of these women, but I encourage you to do so. There's some pretty stunning uh, and unsettling stories. If we think through each of these women, just by summary, I think we've got a Um, uh, A slide just linking them up as we go down. First of all, with Tamar and Judah, Judah, uh, who's mentioned right there at the start of the genealogy almost, was amongst the most prominent of Israel's tribal chiefs. But it is Tamar who was commended as being unquestionably the more righteous of the two of them. In fact, those words came from Judah's own lips. Uh, He had wronged Tamar, and he declared, Tamar is more righteous than I am. It was Judah and his sons who were condemned for their immoral mistreatment of Tamar, even after Tamar had been left widowed, helpless, and childless. Rahab was a woman of the Canaanite city of Jericho, which the Israelite army, I mentioned before, had besieged. Yet Rahab is celebrated for courageously trusting and obeying God's word, even though she was amongst Israel's enemies. And in the book of Joshua, she is directly contrasted with the Israelite Achan, who is a descendant of Judah, from the same family as Judah, who was stoned to death because of his disobedience to God during the same siege at Jericho. The Canaanite prostitute, honoured for her obedience and trust in God's word, Achan stoned to death for his refusal to obey and trust it. Ruth, whose story we're actually going to explore in January, we'll come to the second half of January, we'll work through the whole book of Ruth together, she was a Moabite, as I mentioned before, a people infamous for their sexual deviancy of incest. At least that's how they had been framed and how those who founded the people had behaved. Yet Ruth proved to be a more righteous and faithful follower of the God of Israel than even her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi, had. Naomi, not surprisingly, and her husband and her sons were also descendants of Judah. They all lost hope in God's promises, abandoned them. They left Israel, assuming that God wasn't going to keep His promises. Ruth trusted God's Word in the way in which they didn't. I wonder if you notice the pattern here. Judah was the most prestigious tribe in Israel. This is the family line of Judah that's represented here in in Matthew before us. The tribe from which all of Israel's great kings would come. And yet it wasn't through the big names, through those who were ethnically speaking most pure, through the powerful or the influential players of Judah's family tree, that God ultimately delivered the great king David, down in verse 6. Rather, it was through the outstandingly righteous lives of otherwise overlooked women, such as Tamar, Rahab and Ruth. God doesn't depend upon the strength, the might or the influence of human flesh to achieve his purposes. Each of these women were included unexpectedly, very unexpectedly, in Israel's nation and community. Instead, God often works through the righteous faithfulness of those who would be otherwise overlooked and paid no attention to at all. In fact, it's often the most capable, the most charismatic, the most mighty and influential who end up doing the greatest dishonour to God's plans and purposes, who most dishonour God promises. And we're confronted with this sobering reality as the fourth mother, is introduced into Jesus' genealogy in the second half of verse 6. Have a look at verse 6 again with me. Uh, Having spoken about uh, Ruth, uh, who gave birth to Obed, and then Jesse, we read verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Here, we're not even told who the mother of King David's son, Solomon, was. Rather, somewhat surprisingly, we're told who she once had been. Notice that she's not even telling us who she was now, the, the wife of David. We're told who she had once been, who she'd previously been. That is the wife of Uriah, the wife of one of King David's own military commanders. King David of Judah had used his power and privilege, his position, his charisma, his influence, to forcefully take another man's wife and then kill the husband in order to hide his adultery. Far from being an asset to God's plans and purposes, at least in this instance, David's power and privilege in the tribe of Judah, his position, charisma and influence, pulled a generational thread in Jesus family tree that ended up unraveling everything in the most devastating manner. I wonder if you've ever tried to fix a little bit of a loose thread on your clothing. You just it's only a tiny little bit. I'm just if I just bite it off or just give it a little tug, I can get rid of it. No one will notice. It'll be gone and all you find yourself doing is pulling a longer and longer thread. It just keeps unraveling. That's almost what we see happening here from verse 6 down to verse 11. A list of a whole bunch of kings following on after King David, but ending up, in verse 11 we're told, with the entire nation going into exile in Babylon, conquered by a foreign army, taken as prisoners to another nation. Interestingly, there are no unexceptional, no messy inclusions in Jesus' family line between verses 7 to 11, I don't know if you noticed that. It's just a line of... Kings, one after the other, all the way down. No messy foreigners or unexpected people inserted in. And yet, what we end up with is not glory, but rather disaster and heartache in the exile. See, so human ideals, human ideas of status, standing, and influence rarely ever serve or secure God's purposes. In fact, they very often compromise and contaminate what God has promised to do. In verses 12 to 15, the last little section of our passage, we read that the royal line of Judah does survive the exile. They do come back, but they really go nowhere. We know almost nothing about anyone in this last third of Jesus' genealogy. It certainly never again reaches the heights of David, I wonder if you notice this as we read through, there's a whole lot of kings listed in the last two-thirds of this genealogy, but only King David is given the title king. The others are just mentioned by their names. No one ever lives up to what had been achieved in his birth. From him, everything just began to unravel. It's only once the repeating pattern, refrain, father of, father of, father of, is once again interrupted By a mother of phrase, that hope is once again breathed into this deflated family line of Judah. Read with me the last verse of the genealogy, verse 16. We read there, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. What's interesting here is not only that it's this mother of phrase who introduces the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, but that there is no father of phrase used for Jesus at all. Did you notice that? The only one in the whole list who doesn't have a father of preceding him, apart from Abraham who kicked off the list. Jesus' place in this genealogy, in God's plans, doesn't depend upon the decision or the will of any human Father. In the first third of the genealogy, God is surprising with us with these surprising choices about who He chose to weave into the family tree of Jesus. Those three outsider, overlooked, uniquely righteous women. But here God turns things up even more of a notch, a greater notch, to prove how little He depends upon the power, the status and the influence of mere men. God weaves Jesus into the royal kingly line of Judah with no help of a human father whatsoever. And that very unusual point is picked up in greater detail in the second half of chapter one, which we'll come back and look at together on Christmas Day, where it speaks about Joseph and his place alongside Mary in the birth of Jesus as Jesus' parents. The way God weaves Jesus into the royal family line of Judah, without any dependence on an earthly father at all, has the potential to be an unexpected and wonderful comfort to each of us as well, I think. For later on in Matthew, Jesus assures us that God can likewise, unexpectedly, weave us into the heart of God's plans and purposes, even though we had no claim for Him to do so. Uh, Up on the screen is going to pop chapter 12, verse 46 from Matthew. Chapter 12, verse 46. And I'll read this out for us. Uh, Jesus is here speaking, uh, just after he's been addressing a crowd about a whole nation of people who will unexpectedly be called into his kingdom. Many who would expect to be there won't be invited in, but he lists several nations who will unexpectedly be invited in to his own kingdom. And then Matthew records this curious exchange between Jesus and a bystander. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. He replied to them, Jesus replied, oh, sorry, someone told Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Jesus replied to him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother in the context of these verses to do the will of the father is to respond in trust to the announcement that Jesus is the messiah that's what Jesus had just been speaking about earlier in the chapter great king david's greatest son the one who is greater than even david himself is the one in whom we are to place our faith and our trust and if we do, we'll find ourselves unexpectedly grafted into Jesus' family line, just as Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and his his wife all had been, in fact, even indeed as Mary herself had been. As was the case repeatedly with Jesus' own genealogy, through Jesus the Messiah, God is able to weave even the most unacknowledged and overlooked of us into the very heart of God's plans and purposes, into his kingdom and into his family as well. And in fact, later on, Jesus is addressing this very idea to his disciples and he says, you, as my brothers, will sit with me on my throne in the kingdom of heaven. We're not just brought in to some forgotten back-end dead end part of Jesus' family tree, we're brought right into this very same line of family that Jesus himself possesses and enjoys, right into the very heart of the family to which God has given his own name. That is one of the most wonderful assurances we have at Christmas, as you remember that God himself took on human flesh so that we ourselves might be grafted into God's own family and household. How about we pray that our confidence would steadily grow in that promise. Dearest Father, we reflect on a passage as this one that seems so distant uh, and remote from us. Names that we're unlikely to remember, let alone have any degree of familiarity with. And yet we delight Father, in this acknowledgement that you, you graft into your own household those who might have had no expectation of ever being noticed or paid attention to. Father, we thank you that all those who entrust themselves to your promises, who place faith in your word, are drawn in as precious members of your own household and family. And in the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, we ourselves have one, who will call us his mother, his brother, his sister, that we might enjoy his place in your family. We ask, Father, that you would comfort us and assure us with these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.